Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Elwood, and welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My guest today is the incredible Lou Grossfeld. Lou has worked all over the world on primate conservation projects with organizations like the Jane Goodall Institute and Borneo Orangutan Survival Australia. She's the curator of primates at Sydney Zoo and the co author of two books, Our Primate Family and Amunka Stories, Saving the Last Apes. I had such a great time chatting with Lou all about chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and her experiences in the field as we sat down together to watch episode 12 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth, Life in the Trees. If you spend your life tambering about in trees, two of the most useful things to have are a pair of hands with which to grip the branches and eyes which can focus on the same thing so that you can accurately judge the distance of, say, the next branch from which you want to jump or swing. There are about 200 different kinds of animals that have those two characteristics. We call them primates, and they include lemurs, monkeys, apes, and man. Uh, am I am I am I wrong? It's probably this like hippy dippy, too many magic mushrooms kind of thing. But it's like, <laughs> but it's like, I feel like there would be a sense of, for want of a better phrase, spiritual connection with great apes. Am, am I wrong? That that depth of connection that you can form is profound. Yeah. Look, great apes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that that connection, that level of intelligence. Mm. There's a there's just something about primates. I love all primates. Mm, mm. Starting at, you know, that tiny mouse lemur all the way up to gorilla so and everything in between. Yeah. I mean, I obviously have animals that I'm naturally drawn to. Yeah. And I think for me it's probably chimps. Um, orangutans and some of the monkeys from Vietnam, in particular the langurs. So there's just something about them Mm. and their intelligence, Mm. just their their social dynamics, just how adaptable they are, just how complex they are. And And I think that's what I really enjoy about working with primates. They're just incredibly stunning creatures. Hi, I'm Lou Grossfeld. I'm the animal care manager for primates at Sydney Zoo. I feel very privileged. I've worked with primates for almost 30 years. I've co-authored two books and I'm very passionate about primates, primate conservation and reconnecting with nature. What, like, what was it? Because you, you said you were into animals as a kid. When I grew up, it was, I wanted to work with rhino. If you look around, there's a lot of rhino yeah, statues. Yeah, yeah. What was that? Just the. Oh, I was just really captivated by how prehistoric yeah. they are and the fact that they've been around for so long. Mm. And the, they're just such a charismatic animal. Growing up, I remember saying to family and friends that I'm going to work with these animals at some point. I started my career at Taronga Zoo when mm. I was 
uh, just turned 22 mm. and I had that opportunity to work with them. There was giraffe, rhino and other hoofstock on that particular section and I was absolutely blown away. I'd been there for about two years and um, one of the primate keepers was going to Africa. The, the vacancy was there and I was really lucky to get it, yeah. but it meant working with chimps and other primates at the same time. And and to be honest with you, it hadn't really crossed my mind yeah. that, that I'd be interested. And then I, I started on that section and that was it. I fell in love. Well, it was the, the social complexity of the chimps that really caught my eye, mm. in particular a chimp that, sealed the deal for me, and that was Labutu. That's the one on the cover of your book? Yeah. So I talk about it in my book, how I felt that my life with Labutu, our lives paralleled. How so? I I became supervisor of primates pretty early on. I'd Mm. only been working on the section for a couple of years, and then Labutu became the alpha male of the chimp group at Taronga very early on in his life, Mm. and that was just unfortunately the previous alpha male died. Right. So I felt we had both stepped into positions of authority probably <laughs> earlier than we would have normally. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, and, and I felt drawn to him and I admired his patience and his tolerance. And I was also captivated by the way that he went about mm. his leadership and the fact that he was able to hold an alpha male position in a chimp community for so long. Mm. In the wild, it's lucky if it's a year or two. Really? Sometimes, yeah, not much beyond that. And I think, you know, you look at some of the stories and some of the observations from from Jane, I think there's been some significant males that have lasted a little longer, but generally speaking, you know, that alpha male role doesn't last forever. Mm. But Labutu held that role for, oh, God, was it 13 years? Just something really incredible. Whoa. So I, I think what I what I watched and learnt from him was that when he grew up in that community mm. with these other males and watching him grow and develop and, and then reaching that age where his best friend started to challenge him for that role, but his years of um, being a very solid, consistent, considerate leader had built him loyalty. <laughs> it sounds like you learned so much from that animal. Oh, I think we can learn a lot from any animal. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that it's 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 a two-way exchange. Mm. We've in a very short period of time through technology mm. and science have separated ourselves from from I think that that circle of existence and ourselves. And ourselves and our, and I, and our own nature. Yeah, and I think that we need to – it's not too late for us to reconnect. Yeah. And I think only through reconnection Mm -hmm. will we develop empathy and and empathy will enable us or empower empower us to do better. I think many of us are already on that journey Mm. and maybe some of us were born to be on that journey. Yeah. see the world in the same way as they do. They live in the same sort of social groups, hardly permanent family relationships. They walk around on the ground as we do, they're there. Most are more powerful than we are. And so if ever there was a possibility of escaping the human condition and living imaginatively, creature's world. It must be with a gorilla. Have you ever had a connection with a gorilla? It was a silverback I worked with at Taronga for many years. Kababu then ended up working with him again down at Mogo Zoo when when he went down there for retirement. So 
Um, what does it mean when a gorilla retires? <laughs> I know. It's a really great question, isn't it? Well, look, we try to manage, you know, primates in human care in a very similar way that we would naturally in the wild. And yeah. what you normally find is retirement in the wild is probably a little more brutal than it is in, in zoos or wildlife organisations. We can give them options and choices. So um, retirement for Kababu was he moved down south to the south coast yeah. with uh, two of his females mm. and two of his offspring and um, he got to spend the rest of his life there. And I feel quite privileged that I ended up being um, the longest serving keeper to ever work with him. He came out um, as, a, as a family group in his early 20s from Arpenhall and I'd only been at Taronga for I think five or six years at the time. And he went on to produce more offspring than, you know, than we anticipated. He was very good at his job. (laughs) (laughs) Real stuff. So obviously, you know, one of the key factors of managing wildlife in in human care is being able to manage the genetic aspect of it. So we decided that it was time to retire Kababu from the breeding population and that that meant retiring him in a way that was respectful to him, to the species. So... Mm -hmm. um, you know, when he when he went down there, um, I think he was oh, late thirties, and um, and I I'd, I'd left left Taronga, and I had a bit of a three year gap, so I hadn't seen him for a while. And I went down there in two thousand and fifteen, and I I wrapped up there about two thousand and eighteen, and he passed away in front of me. So he had a he had what it appeared to be from from post mortem a massive heart attack. So he he. And I, I remember talking to a, a Melbourne zookeeper about this, Uli, because she had something happen to her very similar where yeah. a male gorilla she'd worked with for a very long period of time, you know, almost waited for it just to be her and him. Oh, my goodness. And so it was it was almost the same thing had happened to me. So we'd, we'd just moved Kababu from, and his family from one facility to another at Mogo. So we'd, yeah. we'd done some renovations and we're giving them something new to, to live in. Yeah. And we'd just, we'd just done the transfer. It was really quite simple. Mm. We'd, we'd provided them with a connecting raceway so they could just go across. And yeah. I've actually got photos of him sitting down on a nice platform looking out at about three minutes before it happened. And, and everyone was there, myself, <laughs> Sally, the owner, and the key primate keepers at the time and then I said, look, why doesn't everyone go and have a coffee and a break and I'll hang here. So we wanted to stay there and keep an eye on them. And yeah. Anyway, um, they left and then I just sat down and he come and sat right in front of me and he just looked at me and held his chest and fell back and passed away. And um, Wow. It's <clears throat> probably been one of the most significant um, moments in my career and I still always get upset when I think about it, but I feel very privileged, yeah. I guess, that he did that. I also sometimes think that he did it to torture me so he know that I remember him for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, but it, it's, it's, do, do, they, do they have that kind of, you know? No, not at all. No, not, not it, spite but like sense of humour. Oh, look, I think. I mean, I mean, if it is a joke, it's a dark joke. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a moment where he felt incredibly relaxed and I don't know what it was, but, you know, he was an incredible animal to work mm, with and it was mm. an absolute privilege and, and an honour throughout my career to have that opportunity. Yeah. And the fact that I had worked with him for longer than any other person, yeah. any other keeper. So remember he came to us um, in his 20s and he'd been living at, at Arpenhall for a long time and um, uh, he came to us in a breeding group and so those keepers said goodbye to him. And, um, you know, and I got to work with him in that space for a really long time and then to go back and spend those last three years with him. Yeah. So, and I didn't quite realise it until afterwards that I had in fact worked with him longer than any other person and that I do feel incredibly, um, incredibly privileged. And I'm assuming that there's like, was there, there's their recognition in him when you. Oh, always. Like when I hadn't seen him for a while, there was almost like, ah, dare you come oh. back down here and he threw some straw at me and, you know, sort of wow. that that sort of looking at me like, you know, where have you been? It, I, I sort of, I remember having a chat to Debbie Cox about this once about that perceived sense of loss yeah. and, you know, with with these sentient beings that we work closely with, you know, and we talk about the great apes, we share so much similarity yeah. with them. Yeah. I guess for them it's like you've been a big part of their life for so long and, and the wondering of you're there and then you're not 
and that concept of loss or that concept of separation. I mean, they experience loss and I've mm. seen that firsthand. But I guess it's that like, well, you can't say to them, like I'm taking you somewhere and, you know, I'll be back to visit. You know, how do you explain that yeah. that to them when, you know, our communication styles are so incredibly different? So for him, he hadn't seen me for three years and it was like, where have you been? So wow. it didn't take long, though, to settle back into. It sounds almost routine. childlike because there's. Oh, look, potentially. Well, yeah, a lot of, uh, like a big theme that's been coming up in these conversations is the idea of um, anthropomorphization. Yeah. And. It always, it, virtually everyone that I've asked, you know, whether the, we're talking about bugs or mammals, it's kind of like, well, we assume that we think that we know because, you know, there's some analogous stuff. But I'm assuming with primates, we're so similar that you can pretty much well, assume. That- I think you, what you just said, I mean, is true, is that I think we still do assume a lot. I mean, there's been a lot of studies about um, sentience, self-recognition, self-awareness. Yeah. And I think generally we accept um the science and that the science tells us that, mm. you know, given that we share 99% yeah. DNA with chimps, yeah. around 98 with gorillas and 97 with orangutans, mm. and that those differences are obviously extreme differences. But you would assume there's a, a degree of, of acknowledgement, awareness. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm very sceptical to apply those anthropomorphic terms at times because mm. – Certainly one of the things in my 30-year career I believe in is that we I don't need to justify chimps being closely related to humans as a reason for saving them, respecting them, yeah. and for them existing alongside us. Yeah. But you can't help but be drawn mm. to that um, familiarity mm. and that I don't know, playfulness side or that, um, you know, that those degrees of intelligence that we see, manipulation, um, you know, emotion, that emotional intelligence I think we see from the great apes. Yeah. So I, I guess for me I see that connection probably more so because I've worked with them for over 30 years and, yeah. you know, and it, it's just it's been an incredible journey. So it's, I mean, so from your experience it's kind of, undeniable that there's a sophisticated I f- consciousness? I, absolutely. I, I feel that. I I'm, I don't know whether that I think, you know, I often ask myself this question about mortality and as you get older Your own humans, mortality. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, you know, you think, well, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, there's an, there's an end of life. Yeah. I don't think that exists for them but so, I think they're aware of once it's occurred. So you see that, um, that grieving process. I've seen female chimps grieve for, for sons that have passed away and, you know, just that that sense of loss. Do they know what it actually means and what happens to them? I don't know. Mm. But, yeah, I do I do feel there's that sophisticated level of emotional intelligence. Contemplation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I see that the, the ability to plan, yeah. the ability to seek revenge, yeah. the ability to – to show laughter yeah. and play, form yeah. friendships and yeah. develop relationships with chimp in chimps in particular that and with orangutans and, and obviously gorillas as well. So you know there's a decision making about that that whole thing. You know, yeah. like I like you, I want to hang out with you. Yeah. You know, I wanna, you know, run up and slap you in the back because I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's that I guess that adolescent and you know when you say you, you is it like ch- childlike? Yeah. I think, you know, so the science tells us that, you know, as human infants and great ape infants, mm. you know, develop parallel, we hit that sort of around eight years of age where, you know, humans continue yes. to, to, to head in a higher level of, yeah. I guess we can say intelligence. I don't know whether or not we're actually able to achieve that if you look <laughs> around the earth. <laughs> oh, from, my, from my experience, I think kids up until about 10 are actually a lot wiser than most adults. They yep. have they have a an ability to be truly present in a in way that we struggle through our entire adult lives to be. I don't know about you, but yes. I, I, like the pursuit of my life has been getting out of my own way, stopping the chatter yeah, and being truly to- just present. And they just do like they just they're, they're they're natural improvisers. They create for the sake of creation. It's just there's a sense of realism. Yeah, that I agree with you. And I think it's funny because I um, before I was a zookeeper, I actually studied to be a school teacher. Yeah, right. So um, that was actually quite 
confronting. Um, I did primary school education and it yeah. was quite interesting. First of all, the kids were taller than me. That was, that was one <laughs> Most thing. of the kids are taller than me yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, so you understand where I'm coming from. But I think there was the rawness of emotion and yeah. and look, and we know that there's, you know, children don't always always tell the truth, but the perception of calling things out as they are yeah. um, was really quite interesting, was really quite confronting. And, yes, oh. I can see those parallels working working with yeah, yeah. With, with the grade eight. So. Well, with what you what you said about oh, Kababu, yeah. the way he was angry at you when you returned, I've had that experience with multiple kids yeah. where I've had to go for a little while. And in my brain, I always thought, oh, I'm going to return and I'm going to be greeted like a god. No, and it's not. Dirty, dirty. Yeah, like, yeah, like, you know, how dare you? How you dare you, you leave me? Because it's also that that childlike thing of, you know, it's difficult to understand that there's a reality outside of your own head. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they don't quite get why. And they, it's like a sense like they've, you've done it to them. Yeah. And, and it's personal. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you probably don't want to talk about oh, Kabuku. Kababu. Kababu, sorry. Um, you sound like one of my friends that. Tafe that used to call him different names. Just to, just, oh, just to be smart. She go, how's Kabobo or Kabaku? Or, and I go, that's not I'm even funny. I'm not trying to be funny. disrespectful. That's, that's, that's not even funny. I'm and just going to show you one photo. Oh that's Kabobo just before. Yeah, oh I know. I know. Look at him. Isn't he magnificent? I think animals know. Yeah, I know. I certainly think The dog that, that I was telling you about, Casper. Oh, my God, that's my best friend's dog's name. I was soul bonded with this dog and What sort of dog was he? Bull Terrier. Yeah. And I know everyone says this about dogs they're close to. He was the dog. But he was the dog. Like people would would laugh at me and go, yeah, 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 he's just a dog. And they'd meet him and go, oh, he's not not just a dog. What's going on with this dog? No. Um, And just before he went – and again, yeah, how old was he? Seventeen. Oh my god! Um, That's amazing. But we had like a last conversation, and I just, you know, I just, just kind of just said to him, like, "I'll see you on the, you know, I'll see you on the on other the side. side." You know, Are you he, make he me knew. Cry? Oh god! When, when, what do you think? Look, I was, was I always loved animals, and I kind of had that. Who's that saint that all the animals flock to? St. Paul or something, I can't remember. Oh, yes. I can't. Yes, okay. But yeah. I had that quality as <laughs> – look at me talking myself up. No, no, I had that no. quality as a young kid. Like yeah. I would go into petting zoos yeah, yeah. and suddenly, you know, the cow in. would be but on – But that's true. That happened to me. Yeah, I just and, – and and I don't think it's like, oh, I'm spiritually connected because I have a similar thing with kids. It's – Yeah, it's that connection. It's that connection and it's not trying to project your will onto them. Like, I think it's it's about being at the same level. Yeah, and and understanding it's like we're all having an experience of life. Yeah, and that's mine isn't more profound than yours. It's just different. Yeah, it's and different. Fine, and I've always been really interested in finding that commonality of connection. Yeah, that- and I and I and like the people I used to work with with the kids would laugh at me because I'd say, I, I, I do believe this, that kids up oh, until about seven or eight are totally. more animal than human. Oh, totally. Animal in the sense that they are pure instinct and they're just in yeah, the moment. Yeah, it's raw. Well, I think, you know, I guess as an adult you're there's a layer of experience. There's, you know, life experiences that probably mould you and shape you and you and, and to some extent you're expected to behave in a certain way. <laughs> exactly. And I think if I look at, say, for instance, the great apes, say like chimps and gorillas have like this little tuft of hair that it's called like a learning curve. So they have this until they're about five years of age. <laughs> so they're, you know, it's like a learning plate or, a, yeah. you know, an L plate. So they're able to do what they want really and get away with anything. Oh, right. So a visual L it's plate. A visual, for the, oh, it's right. a visual tuft. It's got a little white tuft of hair. And, wow. Um, what, so they don't get smacked in the back of the head for yeah, being Yeah, yeah, and then shits. they start to lose it when they're about six or seven, so then it's like, you know. <laughs> and, and, I, and I wonder, yeah, <laughs> like if we if we do that comparison, I guess for infant human infants it goes longer. But, you know, as you realise as an adult, and I think as you get older you probably there's another layer on top of that and you it's just. happening. You just go, oh, well, I'll just conform. Yeah. And then all you feel, I don't know. I don't know. It's very interesting, but there is a definitely, I think, when. Yeah. You feel a connection to, to like for me as well, children. Yeah. Uh, even though I didn't want children for myself, no, neither. children, yeah, children and and animals. But I think kids. I, I from the experience I've had with kids, I think they all feel that up to a certain age, and then 
you know, I don't know. I think reality crunches in. It's really well, funny. Life changes. Life changes. But I think I've also I've noticed there's a, a around the age of eight or nine. I think that's baby's first existential crisis. Yeah. I think that's the first time life starts to hurt a bit. Yeah. And you can't shake it off as easily. No, those choices. Yeah. And, and, and then I think that's when reality starts solidifying a lot more and it's a lot harder for some, for, for most, to start just connecting on that pure yeah. instinct level. Life almost becomes about survival. Yeah. And I feel like probably up until then there's life's probably a little bit more – I don't know, free. I don't well, know. There's if more it's possibility. Free. Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know. No. That's it hasn't, true. Like, it just feels so much less pressure. Yeah. And you just feel a sense of freedom. And I think that's yeah. what I see with with the grade eights as well. Imagine if you could exist in the moment now. I'm finding it easier as I get older. It's I do. It's really too. interesting. Yeah. You've do you feel like now it's more about quality? Yeah. And I probably feel that I make I think in my twenties and thirties, I probably made choices that I thought that everyone else wanted me to make as well. I Even did that. <laughs> I did. Even though it was still all about what I wanted to do, yeah. you know, if I wanted to go and volunteer in Vietnam, or if I wanted to go to Madagascar, I did. If I wanted to go to Africa, my whole life, yeah, 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 is here in in books and photos and pictures and yeah. stuff. As I've gotten older, I'm going, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do it. So you thought you went to volunteer in overseas? Yeah, at, I did for it. other people's. Well, I think that. No, that bit I don't think yeah. I did, but I think I conformed and I think I went along with social activities right. at times. Yeah, okay. Probably. and That's so funny because you're, just, you're describing such a transgressive life. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm, I'm very layered. You're talking think, about it like you went and were an accountant for 20 mm, years. <laughs> no, I know. I probably, I think back to, I think back to all the thing, pretty cool things I've done and I look yeah. around and think of all the I don't know, the reminders of the journey, you know. I that think it's I've, a very brave life. Like, I, 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 I'm not saying that like, oh, you're like, no, but, no, honestly, no, I, I think about that. I remember sitting down a couple of years ago thinking I really did catch a bus from Bogor, I remember, to in the, to the Jakarta airport mm. and I was the only bule white person on the bus, female white person mm-hmm. on the bus. And I've got friends. Fleur Butcher is a close friend from Melbourne Zoo and her and I do a lot of work in Indonesia together. Yeah. She does that all the time as well. And I think most most of my friends mm. who don't work with animals used to think I was nuts. Yeah. And like, what are you doing? I mean, I have to say in my late 20s, I think I'm fairly confident I sort of hitched a little way around Africa and Uganda <laughs> a little bit with, <laughs> you know, like, oh, let's just, you know, we, we just, we're a little free and easy. I probably the realities of it weren't quite... Yeah. As they are now. I mean, if I think back to, to working in Uganda and volunteering with Debbie, I'm fairly confident that I was supposed to catch a post bus because you could catch them to go to places <laughs> and the one in front blew up. And I don't think that I went, oh, okay. You know, but as you get older, you're like, wow, it could have really all been over. Yeah. Way back then. And now you just imagine if you could exist in the moment now. I, I- mean, what opportunities and possibilities could life bring? The big ape of Borneo is the orangutan. Its toes have just as powerful a grip as its fingers. In fact, you might with justice call it forehand. They're far too big to jump about and seldom let go with more than two limbs at a time. They move across space by using their weight and making a tree or vine sway in the direction that they want to go. Orangutans. Something quite um, sentient, deep, look into your soul. When you're looking into the eyes of an orangutan... Do you feel like you're communicating? Oh, I, I feel like they're analysing me. Really? I feel like they're way, weighing, like looking me up and down. Like, am, am I wrong in interpreting that? Of like, they they see they're like such the, good judge of character. Yeah, like they see the true you. They but if always, you came at them false, they would know that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you you can't trick an orang. 
the the eyes are a gateway to the soul. Let's be serious, and mm. I think orangs have that capacity to see straight through through that through that gateway. So it's interesting because orangutans are probably the most determined mm. animal that I've certainly worked with. And I think if you look at the African apes, we see a, a sociality there that's really obvious. Mm. You know, gorillas live in a harem society, one yeah. male, multiple female. Chimps are very gregarious, multi-male, multi-female. There's a lot of political intrigue going on. <laughs> it's like I'll be your friend today because you can get me something tomorrow. <laughs> But with orangutans, that self-reliance, traditionally they're considered to be solitary yeah. animals. And we know that that's not exactly the case. There is a degree of sociality with them as they mature. Mm. But that steadfast conviction, the length of time it takes to earn their trust. Right. When you first meet an orangutan that you've never met before, you sometimes don't get direct gaze. Mm. You'll get something that's sideways and looking at you. And they're just trying to establish... Mm who you are, where you up, and they look around. And then I think over time mm. you develop these relationships and this level of trust. And, and I look up at these photos here of Santan, May and Dewey. Now they're the three animals that I work with at Sydney Zoo. It's incredible to have developed relationships with these three animals. Yeah. But I've had many, many other, I think, significant animals in my life, like Willow, an orangutan that taught me so much about patience, (laughs) determination and frustration. How so? Well, Willow was a young female orangutan that I worked with at Taronga when I was, I guess, in many ways learning to understand not only what I wanted to do with my career, Mm. but also learning, well, what's the best thing for these animals that that are being housed in human care? Mm -hmm. And I think I feel... As in, as in the best thing for their... Best thing for their, for their welfare. Yeah. You know, we we talk a lot about, you know, animals living in the wild mm. and the wild is such a hard place to <laughs> yeah. live in. And and I know this sounds very cliche, but, you know, I remember talking to Jay Goodall once and her saying to me that she would rather be a chimp living in a good zoo than actually being a chimp living in the wild of Africa today because really? the uncertainty, where's your me- next meal coming from, the disease risk, human population deforestation. So I feel very proud of the fact that I work in a wildlife organisation or, or a zoo. I know a lot of people probably don't feel that, mm. but I do because I know the work that we do yeah. and I know the conservation role we have. And yeah. I think that having had the privilege of travelling so much into these wild places, you mm. know, Africa, Madagascar, all throughout Asia, Vietnam, Indonesia, and the realities that these animals face and knowing that the animals are in human care, mm. I almost feel like they're just so much safer. So when you say safer or before when you were saying that Jane Goodall said, you know, she would rather be a chimpanzee living in a, a good, good zoo. zoo than in there, but is that, that's predominantly because of human beings, right? That's the reality we face today and yeah. I think that we've probably made changes and I think finally we can see the changes we've made to the planet and what the impact of that is. Mm. So we've got choices. Have we made the right choices? I don't know. But I think that, you know, an ever-increasing population, human population, an ever-increasing yeah. level of deforestation, we've changed on how animals and humans need to live together. Mm. So this is where really good wildlife organisations, zoos, sanctuaries and those mm. sorts of places mm. They are a part of a story. Mm. They're a part of that journey yeah. in order for us to keep those those animal populations going. They're an insurance population for the future. And I finally and I hope that we learn something and we change something and we do it soon. So yeah. you listen to Jane Goodall and you listen to David Attenborough and they tell those stories. And the thing that I got from both of them and I do feel very privileged that I did get to meet and talk to both. It's so great. <laughs> I will have to show you the photo on yep. my phone somewhere to prove yep, yep, it. Yep. It was a story of hope. And I'm going to say that that storytelling platform, mm. and that's the one thing I remember her telling me, Jane believed that humans would be more empowered to make change if they could relate to things. And I Absolutely. think, if, And if you talk to people through science, or figures and facts, and yeah. I think you'll lose most of us yeah. for that journey. But if you tell someone something yeah. through a story, yeah. 
you know, and I, I make those connections with people through the animals that I've worked with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I've gone on to see other people. Yeah, I want to help. I want to do something. Yeah. I feel that connection. No, you're abso- it's absolutely the stories. Because, I mean, I was very terrified of nature for most of my childhood, very separate from it all. And it was these documentaries that got Made me. Made you feel that connection? Yeah. And it was, uh, again, I've talked about it in other conversations, but for a long time I thought I was anthropomorphizing and all the rest. And then I started to realize, I don't think I am. I think I'm recognizing things that are innate to all life. I think we sometimes struggle with labeling it Mm. and we feel almost guilty about labeling it in an anthropomorphic way, like saying, well, no, you know, that animal's feeling a sense of loss or that animal's feeling a sense of excitement. And because they're human Human words or human terms, we feel like we can't, science tells us, well, traditionally, I think science told us that we can't put those labels on those things. Yeah, and but but I but think, I think that, that's changed. I think it's changed, and yeah. I think for, for me, the thing that 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 made it less kind of wishy washy was realizing that the things that are in us aren't necessarily original. They come from somewhere. They've and absolutely. They might not be the same depth and complexity or whatever words you want to use, but you know, as you say, it like all chimps grave, somewhere. elephants visit the bones of their ancestors oh. every year and they cry as they stroke the bone. And you can say, oh, we need to do more tests. And But, but do inside, we? Do we? <laughs> like, you know, sometimes well, sometimes grief is just grief and it's, and, it, and, it's, and it's obvious that that's what's going on. I think if it's a, it's a great comment though, like do we, uh, you know, should we keep testing? Yeah, maybe if that helps to convince those that don't believe, if mm. we can, if we can find out more, but I guess – I, I still come back to that that point is mm. for what purpose mm. and, you know, a shared planet, a shared future. Yeah. And that's what I want to see and I know that's something you want to see yeah. and that's something so many people want to see. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Chimpanzees live rich and varied lives. They live in large groups, sometimes up to 50 strong. And they need to recognize one another as individuals. So, like us, they have very different and immediately recognizable faces. Bonobos and chimps are really interesting. (laughs) So... They're multi-male, multi-female. Yeah. But with chimps, you find that it's normally led by a, a group of males that never actually move out of home. So I right. there's a lot I think there's a lot to unpack there. So normally That's kind of what's happening in human society well, now, sons right? Don't normally leave home. <laughs> so yeah. Basement so, dwelling bonobos. Yes. Well well actually no, bonobos are a little different. Bonobos are female led hierarchy. Right. So normally you find that the highest ranking animals in bonobo society is female. So whereas in chimps it's male and that alpha male position tends to be the most sought after position in the community. And um, what's really interesting is that the most important individuals in that community to the males are their mothers and grandmothers, whereas the females at, at sort of sexual maturity or when they've reached dispersal age, which is anywhere 7, 9, up to 15, mm. they'll leave that community and go on to another one, whereas wow. the boys do not. So when so, you say mothers and grandmothers are the most important, you mean yeah. as in like in terms of providing protection and food? Absolutely. Well, not not necessarily food, but it's really interesting to see um, uh, adult male chimps when they come under conflict. So you'll see these male chimps born into a community 
they'll sort of reach adulthood or anywhere from 15 to 18. And we're talking about a, an animal that has the strength of five human men. So it's nothing like a male chimp chasing another male chimp in, and that male chimp runs to its mother or runs to its grandmother. And seeing mum and granny get in there and, and help. And, really? Um, yeah, absolutely. It's wow. really interesting to see. But the, the political side of chimp, um, life is very interesting mm. and you see these males that once be that were once the best of friends grow up to be political rivals so your best uh, friend at school ends up being the person that you fight for that job chimps will fight each other to the death yeah and they will do that particularly and i think jane goodall was one of the first people to acknowledge that chimps and to observe that chimps do hunt they will eat meat and they will also take out other communities of chimps the first time I ever saw Can be very chimpanzees going out for rhesus monkeys. Oh, it was re- – and I'm not a per- I'm not squeamish about animal hunts at all. Like they don't disturb me at all. I think there's an inherent justice to it. But I think because they look – it felt like someone had gone back in time, 300,000 years and filmed But us. I think that's – the and that's it. I think it's the reality of – we think the wild is glamorous. We think the wild is an easy place to be, but mm. it's not. Animals have to fight for food. They have to, and that involves killing other animals. And yep. and it also means if you think about a majestic silverback, mm. that towards the end of his reign, he'll be taken out by a blackback. And if he's got offspring in his community that <laughs> are his, a blackback maturing male will kill, just like lions. Will kill I didn't know that. offspring to, to bring those females back into estrus. And Whoa. I think that we it's one of the more challenging aspects, I think, for managing wild populations in, in human care because we want to preserve those qualities that are completely natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and I think about um, you know, some some things and um that I've been a part of and some things that I've observed observed. And I remember a a, a situation where I um a male hamadreus baboon was um, had taken an offspring, mm. you know, from from another from a female of a and you know that belonged to another another male, and unfortunately that infant died through that process because he wanted to take that female. Mm. Now their behaviours you see mm. in the wild, mm. you but people become uncomfortable when they see it in a zoo, or they see it in a wildlife park. And to me, that just shows a lack of knowledge mm. and a lack of understanding of the reality of managing wild populations mm. in human care. We want to support, we want to preserve. That's the goal. And sometimes facing the realities of nature is tough and I think that's mm. where the David Attenboroughs and the Jane Goodalls have managed to bring those really hard issues that we need to face to yeah. the forefront. Yeah. Because we think it's all glory and 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 a beautiful place to be. The but, Lion King. Yeah. And I remember someone saying to me many years ago, Lou, how can you work with chimps? You know, people want to work with seals or birds or reptiles and, you know, they're dark, scary animals. And I think, well, you know, I often say that you only need to pick up a a newspaper, you see some some great stories of what people are capable of, but you see some very dark stories as well. Yeah. And I think that's that's that par- parallel and I think that is one of the things that I find so incredibly interesting about them. But I, I'm scared for chimps. I think probably more than any other animal mm. and whether or not it's because I've worked so closely with them for so long and – you know, I, I, and I see, you know, or I, the the threat that faces them in the wild. I mean, you know, Jane often talks about when she first started going to Gombe and over the years mm. looking at the forest getting less and less. Um, I don't know. I, I want to believe and I do. And she, you know, she talks about that, that hope. Yeah. And... And I have to believe that there's a there's space for them, and yeah. that we we have to do something to save them. And I think that continues to to motivate me. We have to keep believing because yeah. if we don't, it's not going to change. 
Do you surrender to despair sometimes? No. You don't? No. It's really easy to lose hope and it's really easy to feel despair. I mean, you know, it's funny because you you talk about watching, you know, a lot of David Attenborough, mm. you know, and I love watching David Attenborough. I have to admit that I'm a little selective in in what I watch. Yep. And I think because I'm it's it's my world, mm-hmm. I'll end up binge watching. I mean, I hate to admit it, but my favorite show is EastEnders from UK <laughs> TV. Been watching it for twenty five years and everyone who knows me just rolls their eyeballs. Um <laughs> It balances out the intensity does, of your other stuff. It does. Absolutely. You gotta have something but like that. But it's easy right? to sit there and go, Well, that's doing nothing, that's this, that's that. And I think we've learnt through the pandemic yeah. that um it's easy to believe anything. And, you know, and everyone's trying to put their story forward. But I think that I do. I feel very lucky that you know every day I can go mm. to a great workplace and I can reconnect with mm. nature or reconnect mm. with animals. That mm. I'm privileged to know that not only am I making a difference to the lives of those individuals in my care. Yeah. Every day, the decisions I make for them in terms of enrichment, in terms of feeding, diet, <laughs> whatever, mm. then I'm also know that those individuals are a flagship. Mm. They're they're telling the story of their wild cousins. And then, you know, we raise money or we educate people, we inspire people, yeah. um, a shared vision. And I know that it's it's motivating people to go out and do something. And yeah. I think that I can't change the world, Ben. You can't change the world. Yeah. But I can change a little bit and I hope Absolutely. I can motivate someone yeah. or, you know, inspire someone. Yeah, and it's also these things of, you know, there's, there's ways that you inspire people that you don't even realise. Like yeah. some little comment that you made that you didn't even you wouldn't even remember saying. No. It sticks in someone's head for the rest of their lives. And I, that's the thing I think. I just I try, just try and live on that positive side and th- be thankful for everything and mm. also be humble. And that's the one thing I've learned in conservation is that often human ego is probably one of the biggest stumbling mm-hmm. blocks in mm-hmm. conservation where we, if people could collaborate a little bit more, drop those walls down, I think that sense of ownership um, and collaborate and it's a shared platform for, for the future. Yeah, and I think I think it's. I mean, obviously, conservation is very different. But in the line of work that I was in with kids and social work and stuff, what you say about like that kind of being in the moment as well, it's it's that it's that realization of like, look, I probably can't change the entire outcome of this kid's future. That's outside of my realm of of what I can do. But I can make this afternoon great. And we can have two or three hours yeah, that's, that's just fun. really fun and, you know, it open. It does make a difference. It does make a difference. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, you know, it's these incremental differences that um, kind of stack up over time. But for that as well, I still, the concept's the same about providing yourself with that emotional support. And I think, what do they call it? Conservation fatigue. Mm. It's Empathy it's, fatigue in social work, it's called. Oh, it's just, yeah. it's tough. So uh, besides my job at Sydney Zoo as a primate manager, I also teach zookeeping at TAFE and that's what I teach these TAFE students, that they need to find an emotional balance and part of the new course is supporting yourself for the journey. But you know one thing I... That, ha- that I have learnt in my travels, and yeah. I know this is probably something you've thought as well. I remember mm. sitting back having dinner with two of my closest school friends that I've grown up with since I was five, and I remember saying to them, uh. a pandemic is only a matter of time. Oh, yeah. All the all the red flags are out there, oh, and yeah, you think yeah, about yeah, yeah, what yeah. we've seen and what, what what's out there, and then... it's It's been so funny watching how people in my life reacted to the last few years. You know, I've been... <laughs> Probably way too far on the kind of doomsday prophecy <laughs> stuff for the like, you know, not in a biblical sense, but just like, hey man, look around, like and things are pretty ha- crazy. We've seen um, a lot in a very short period of time, haven't yeah. we? Yeah, and it's so funny. Like over the last couple of years, friends have been calling me like, oh, I suppose you feel really vindicated right now. So, no, I've never been, I've never been more unhappy to be right. But it just, it feels like, it definitely feels like we're at some kind of juncture point. 
something had to happen for people to kind of go, whoa. Countries I'm, I'm gonna... hopeful that we've that this this has really been a pivotal. Think so. I hope so. I hope so. And I that's and and I guess in some ways it's probably very ignorant, but I've always I've always believe that you just we need to strive we need to strive for hope remain hopeful yeah and i think working within what you can do as an individual like if you think about what you're doing and Mm. the connections you're making Mm. and the information that you're sharing Mm. you're touching people's lives and you're hoping that even one person out there is motivated to make a difference yeah you think about what david attenborough taught you i think about what these people have taught me and, you know, and I hope that through everything I've done, like volunteer work, you know, the books that I've written, um, mm. particularly the second one about the stories of, of the people that aren't famous, yeah. that have given up so much yeah. to make a difference yeah. to, you know, from, from the local Indonesian technician, this local woman who's got a family at home but will spend night after night nursing an infant orangutan who's lost its mother. Mm. And I think that so many of us forget that even though we often go through life and we there's lots of people we'll never meet and there's lots of people that we may never connect with, every single person has the ability to make a difference mm. and every single person has an ability to contribute and it yeah. all comes down to the decisions we make every day. Yeah, I think that's the that's the thing you got to hold on to, right? That kind of thinking collectively, but also as an individual. I always I, say, think conservation youth, think globally, but you act locally, mm, 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 mm. and try and do something within your capacity or your capability. But yeah, it's certainly been a privilege oh. in my journey. Thank you, Lou. Thank you. Oh, Thanks again to the brilliant Lou Grossfeld for sitting down and chatting with me. And as always, a big thank you to my co-producer, co-editor and sound wizard, Sean Allen, for all the bells and whistles that he puts into this production. Now, if you are enjoying this podcast, please take 30 seconds to race over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and a review. Every little bit helps in getting this podcast out into as many ears as possible. Next week, my guest is comedian and archaeologist KC Martin-Stone. We sit down together to talk all things human as we watch episode 13 of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Thank God for David Attenborough.